My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius. I am Iron Hello and welcome to the Post Credit Pod. I am Brandon Katz, Senior Entertainment Reporter for Observer. I'm joined as always by partner in crime, Eric Italiano, Senior Editor at Pro Bible. Today we are continuing our deep dive into Christopher Nolan's filmography in honor or maybe dishonor of Tenet, depending on where you landed on that film. Uh, today we are tackling Interstellar, personal favorite of mine, obviously very divisive. Eric, I'm excited to hear what you have to say about it because this is one that uh, not a lot of people agree on, frankly. But before we get into that, the big news of the day is that Amazon has acquired the rights to the Secret Borat sequel that is filmed during the coronavirus. Some wild stories surrounding kind of the production of this movie. And the fact is they're going to release it in conjunction with the upcoming presidential election, which is just so on brand for the absolute craziness that is 2020. I'm excited for it personally because I'm, I was a fan of the original. I don't necessarily think it's going to be as hilarious this time around, but I am excited for it. Eric, where do you land on the kind of Borat sequel spectrum? So first, I just want to talk about how crazy, how crazy fast this all moved. I just wrote a post for work about a month ago where he was like seen, spotted as Borat in the real world. And in the weeks since... This has developed so quickly. Now, what I've read is the leaking of the film sort of forced their hand and made them and had them move a little bit faster than they would have. But over the course of a month, we've gone from not even knowing this was a thing to knowing its title, which is... Let me yeah, please read this for the folks at home. This is some Harley Quinn, Birds of Prey, Fantabulous Emancipation type stuff. Good, good call. So this is Borat, colon, gift of pornographic monkey to Vice Premier Mikhail Pence to make benefit recently diminished nation of Kazakhstan. As one does. So Yeah, that's about 13 words or so. Um so we've gone from not even knowing that this is a thing to knowing the title to now knowing that it's going to come out in the next four or five weeks. And based on the title and when it's coming out and Baron Cohen's liberal leaning ways, I'm thinking that this film is going to contain something that's going to make news. That's just my gut feeling. You think it'll be specifically Trump related? Maybe not Trump himself, but somebody in his camp. I think the chances are very high. Someone got got in the Trump admin. Yeah, maybe not the admin, but like, but like, whether it be governor or just somebody who aligns themselves with Trump, who is a relatively big name, it wouldn't shock me if they got taken down in this film. Because when you think of everything we've seen him do so far, and when you think about the fact that he this was filmed in the last six months right so he he got this done in a covid world ahead of voting day which tells you that he's you know in a rush a rush for what and that leads me to my point where i think that he's got something that's going to make news in there logistically i'm so curious 
as to how they made this film. Number one, they made it in COVID. And it's not like it's, it's actors where everyone can be tested and you can kind of control the sets and environments. It is real people out in the real world that he's, that he's spoofing, which, which is crazy to me. And number two, at this point, after hundreds of millions of dollars at the box office, you know, in 2006 or whenever the first one came out, how are people still falling for Borat? Well, so we, we talked about this in our Slack chat at work. And my point was that the people he's going for are probably so out of touch that they don't remember Borat. You know, like if they, if he's going after Midwestern uh, conservative types who are probably older, they not, they're not going to know what Borat is, especially when you think about the fact that it's been 14 years since that first film. And it's not a character. I mean, it was big at the time, but it's not, so, it's not like a film that you see on TV. You don't see it on streaming. So while it was a moment then, I'm not like, I can guarantee you if you ask a kid who's 18 who Borat is, they have no idea. I don't know, man. I, I, I think we're gonna have to do some market research on that one. I think he's a little bit bigger than you have, you're giving him credit for. What I will say is that if I'm ever so out of touch that I can be had in this way, you have full permission to punch me in the head. That's it? Yeah, I just want you to punch me in the fucking head for being a dumbass, okay? Yeah. I mean, I'm Will you curious. do that as my friend and my, and my podcast partner? Gladly. I mean, one, once you're that far gone, I'll be, I'll, I'll be glad to do it. <laughs> then you can replace me on the pod, too. Like, I need someone who's in touch. So do we, do we think it's going to be funny? Or... I See, I think because it's shock humor and because we are so familiar with the premise, especially kind of our demo who did live through the phenomenon that was the first one, I think it will be less funny than the original. Do I still think it's going to have some laughs? Am I still going to watch it the day it comes out? Absolutely. It will also be interesting to see how a film like Borat exists in today's world, right? Like back in 06, the climate is not what it is now. Times have changed big time. And yeah. I, and the, uh, the first film, if it were to come out now, would raise absolute hell. I mean, so, he was sued by everybody involved in the first film. And that was really before this whole PC sensitive culture took hold. It's like, what is going to be the aftermath now? Well, and then in this, that, Deadline reports that some scenes were such a risk that he was wearing a bulletproof vest while shooting, which just tells you that he, you know, the stakes are not a joke. He, he was putting himself in some spots where he felt that he was at serious risk. Like, love or hate Sasha Baron Cohen, love or hate that type of shock humor. His commitment. Dude, dude goes there. Yeah, dude goes all out. One, I think he's a very intelligent person who, who designs increasingly hilarious characters and scenarios that tap into this kind of primal either hate love you know right wing left wing he's very good at kind of tapping into for lack of a better term passionate fan bases right and number two i mean jesus this guy's putting it on the line yeah yeah and i hope it's worth it you know because to to get this all going in covid to risk your own life to do it he obviously must have a point that he's trying to prove. And I also got to respect the guy's kind of versatility as an entertainer because he's got Borat 2 coming out, the schlockiest, ridiculous 
most crazy thing in the world. And he's also one of the main stars of Aaron Sorkin's Oscars hopeful, The Trial of the Chicago 7, which hits Netflix in October. So guy's got a foot in both worlds. Has he ever been in like a drama? Yeah, he's been in a couple. He was in Les Mis, which he was good in, um, oh, although no he was comedic shit. in that. He was in uh, The Spy on Netflix, which wasn't amazing, but it was certainly solid. A very intense, true story about an undercover Israeli agent. Uh, he's done a couple of things. You know, he, he is, and I know this is going to sound pretentious, an artist. Like, he cares about different types of performance and entertainment. But obviously, he's best known for Ali G and Borat. Right, right. Okay. I mean, yeah, I respect the hell out, out of him as well. So Yeah, I'm excited to see it. But I'm honestly more excited right now to talk about our main topic, and that is revisiting Interstellar. We must confront the reality that nothing in our solar system can help us. Now you need to tell me what your plan is to save the world. We're not meant to save the world. We're meant to leave it. And this is the mission we were trained for. I've got kids, Professor. Get out there and save them. This whole thing started with Tenet, and we wanted to kind of look back at Christopher Nolan's filmography, see the tricks of his trade and how he became the filmmaker we know today. And in Interstellar, one thing that I know is important to you and was very readily apparent, apparent into the kind of the filmmaker he became is the blockbuster grandiose nature of the trailer and i know this is something kind of near and dear to your heart eric well because the trailer i just remember it was released in 2013 and it was like a teaser there were no there wasn't a lot of shots from the actual film itself it was sort of b-roll footage of like space flight and stuff it was more vibe than like actual trailer yeah, yeah no plot just vibes um and I just remember it sort of encapsulated this idea of like the American space traveling, boundary pushing pioneer, which is an ideal that, and this, this film harps on this, while it's an ideal that has sort of died in the, the past few years. But don't tell Elon Musk. Right, right. It, it remains an ideal that is intoxicating. Um, the thought, Good word for it. the thought of traveling, like the thought of traveling to a world that's not our own, not for like, for the sake of like sci-fi fun, right? For the sake of a scientific need, is is something that is inspiring. Like the fact that our hands are tied, we have but no choice but to find a new home. And because we are the pioneers that we've always been, we're going to do that. Um, and then you've got the Matthew McConaughey voiceover saying all this emotional dope shit um, with his classic Texan Southern drawl. He's got that beautiful twang, man. Yeah. So it just, and then the final shot of the trailer, which is not from the film, but it's of his two kids holding hands and they look up to the sky and a rocket ship is shooting up and the title unfurls vertically and it just sort of epitomized what nolan is it it was telling you prepare for all the mind fuckery that you've come to know (laughs) 
plus a heavy dosage of emotionally weighted sci-fi. And when it comes to things that I want to see in a film, that's probably it right there. We've always defined ourselves by the ability to overcome the impossible. And we count these moments. The first ever to fly faster than the speed of sound. These moments when we dared to aim higher, to break barriers, to reach for the stars. 76, you are go. To make the unknown known. We count these moments as our proudest achievements. Having fired the imagination of a generation. But we lost all that. Pulls into port for the last time. Or perhaps we've just forgotten that we are still pioneers, that we've barely begun, and that our greatest accomplishments cannot be behind us, because our destiny lies above us. Like a big budget, emotional sci-fi film is Eric's movie. You could not sell me on anything more than you could sell me on that. So, you know what I'm getting you for your birthday now, so thank you for that. So going, what a trip to space! Oh no, it's going to ruin the surprise, man. Come on now. Um, so going into this film, the trailer had me prepared for this is going to be his definitive film, and we'll get into if that's the case or not. But the, that's the hype that I had for it, and it was all from a relatively short trailer. I'm glad you mentioned some of those things because, in terms of the actual trailers, yes, one. It is going for vibes more so than an introduction to what this movie is about. And number two, there's a heavy coating of emotional layering in that trailer. And the common criticism of Christopher Nolan throughout his career is that he is sort of a detached and unemotional director, that his films are mindfuckery and plot-based and not necessarily character-based. But Interstellar as he said in interviews several times, is actually a love letter to his daughter. And in kind of approaching the film from that angle and from starting off the marketing material from that angle, I believe that it's his most personal, most hopeful, most emotional film. And I do believe that while I think he perhaps doesn't get quite enough care, uh, credit for characterization in, in other films. Overall, it is actually a fair criticism and one that he pivoted away from and, and helped ameliorate with Interstellar. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's spot on. I wanted to ask you, is this the only Nolan film that has ever made someone cry? That depends. Mileage may vary. You know, like it, when I'm watching Memento, I'm sometimes crying because I'm so goddamn confused about which is taking place when and whatnot. Although I love that movie. No, but, but uh, this think, is definitely his most emotional. Yeah, but like think about the, the context of his work, right? And all the films that he's done. Is there ever a scene where you're like, wow, I'm on the verge of tears here? Probably not, except no. for in this film. That scene where Cooper reacts the fact that he just lost 23 years and his kids have grown up without him being here that five 
10 minute scene is the most emotional scene in any of Nolan's films, period, the end, right? So it has that going for it. Then on a bigger scale, it is at the same time, his most ambitious, most grandiose, most scientific film, but it's also his most personal and most emotional film. So I find that the balance of those two things work really well. It makes the family drama being lost in space where, and as they point out, nothing protects you except a few feet of steel. It makes the family drama hit that much harder. It's so, a great parallel. He, yeah. he, him and the family struggle are essentially humanity's uh, struggle to survive told through the eyes of this one Midwestern, you know, relatively normal American family, all things intended. Yeah. And then in terms of how he built more emotion into the plot itself, the third act literally hinges on love being a force that could transcend time and space, right? That is almost sickeningly... Uh, Hokey? Yeah. Yeah, it is. And while I understand the idea and while I do like him going outside of his box and going for that, the way, like, the way that he wound up going about it was clunky, but it shows you that he was willing to forego smoothness to make the point that he wanted to make, to, to yeah. speak on this family daughter love that he wanted to speak on. And so in that sense, I, I do think that it is something that we haven't seen from him since really either. You know, I don't think he's gotten this deep since, but it is something that I would love to see him explore more. The th I agree completely because the thematic focus on love is him expanding his horizons and actually digging into thematic emotional honesty rather than just this is like such a cool intricate plot that does have a smidgen of messaging but maybe is not the central core driving factor and i also agree completely that it is simultaneously a plus and a minus on the film which is so interesting to me that it can be one this huge positive and huge great takeaway that makes me feel for this character and two be so clunky and ham-fistedly handled, as you kind of said. And, and I think that feeds into the greater pop culture conversation surrounding this move. Prior to Tenet, Interstellar was easily Nolan's most divisive original blockbuster. It had a 72% on Rotten Tomatoes. Do you think it's so polarizing because of how he handles that kind of self-expansion as a storyteller? Or do you think there's more to it than that? So for me, I think it all comes down to the ending. I don't think people are turned off by the heavy-handed love themes, the way that it's uh, shoehorned into the plot, the dialogue. But I think- like At worst, they're snickers, but they're not outright rejection. Exactly, which is, which is how I feel. Yeah. But I do think that the way that, the, that love transcending time and space is applied in the film itself, i.e. the Tesseract. I think that that is such a dense and inexplicable climax that I could easily see a film goer having that part blind them to what came before. So when they watch the film, they leave thinking, 
what the fuck was that ending? <laughs> Forgetting all the good stuff that came before that. Um, we also already hate libraries in 2020, so making it a bookcase did not help. Now, for me, the ending is a pill that I'm just down to swallow, right? Like, I am taking it for what it is. I'm saying, okay, it's not my favorite thing in the world, but I'm going to accept it. Accept what you're trying to do here, right? I could see most people sitting through that film and then getting to the end of a sci-fi. Mind you, this is a hard sci-fi. And then having it flip on some sort of nonsensical moving gravity with the power of my heart, whatever, I could see why that has caused some division amongst fans. In terms of the sci-fi, though, I actually love that it feels really grounded apart from the fifth dimensional wormhole and the glaring time paradox that that connects to. Other than that, this is not like a jargon exposition heavy sci-fi movie. It's, it's really cool in its attempt at realism and something that is suspension of disbelief withstanding within humanity's reach to a, yeah. to a certain extent. Yeah. But like you said, that ending is such a left turn that I think I, I believe Interstellar is a masterpiece in spite of the third act, which I don't again even saying third third act is too broad, right? All all that yeah. stuff with Matt Damon and them trying to reattach the ship while it's spinning is is all thrilling stuff, right? Yeah. I really just think it's more the last half an hour is more of where it all falls apart. And I also think that last half hour, while it is kind of related to time, it's also a little bit of a straying from kind of the central theme and idea of Interstellar. I wrote about this for Observer before Tenet came out. It really is a movie that kind of reconciles the past to deliver hope for the future. You know, our choices and actions in the future are our salvation and not our damnation, which the movie is kind of positing at first. And the fact that they are undertaking this mammoth mission speaks to kind of the limitlessness of human potential. It's, it's a belief in our ability to endure and survive as a species. And the whole movie is kind of built around this idea that our, our immediate future is our end, that we are going to die. And yet this uses a kind of forward-thinking futuristic blockbuster to try to deliver hope for that future and say, no, 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 once we let go of the past, we're actually able to change where we're going and heading forward. And I do believe that that ending attempts to synthesize all those ideas and perhaps fails to do so on a very basic level, even as it provides amazing like food for thought and theorization material that we can then go to Reddit and have a ton of engaging conversations about. But overall, do you think because it is so divisive and polarizing. It actually makes Interstellar a more interesting movie. Whereas opposed to like Inception, it, it hit and everyone was like, this is amazing. And we kind of loved it, but moved on a little bit. Right. So I, I think it's the inverse of Inception. Whereas we talked a lot about on our, our last pod, how the intended effect of in Inception sort of wears off each time you yeah. watch it. Diminishing returns especially considering the fact that we've yet to have children only grows that we know of. You and I went to college, man. Wild times. That's not funny. Do not joke like that. 
Um, <laughs> Eric Italiano, his address is rah, 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 rah. any kids send their requests there. Um, but so each time I watch it, I do think I actually enjoy it more. Um, Agreed. Because I am aging and it's a film about aging and time because I am a more mature man each time I watch it. Once I start to have a wife and kids, family, who knows? You know, I don't know what that daughter love feels like. So you and I really can't even relate to the film's main theme yet. But as someone who you have said on the pod many times, one of your criteria for judging a film is, can me and my dad kick back and watch this together and both enjoy? I saw this with my dad and we both walked out being like, that was awesome. So even though we don't have kids, we have the, the paternal connection that this movie is also built around. So we kind of have, right now we're the Murph stand-ins and eventually right. down the line we'll be Cooper. Yeah, and I think that that's why it works into the fact that this ages well and that, yeah, you know, I think that people, if you go back to rewatch it now, as we talked about at the end of the last pod, this is the ultimate theater film. So I do feel for those who didn't get a chance to see this on a big screen. It but, does take away. If your first time is watching this on FX, but the like, effects, man, you're missing out. But the effects are so incredible yeah. that as long as you're in a dark room and a big screen with a loud ass speaker, it'll still hit. I mean, I, I watched this in my room, man. And I've got a 55-inch, you know, it's big enough with a Bose sub, and it's incredible. It's an incredible experience. Um, so both in terms of the aesthetics of the film, the themes of the film, and my enjoyment of it, I think those are only going to grow with time. Did you know that astronomers in real life credited Interstellar with being one of the best representations of black holes and... I think the yeah. best, yeah, period, the end. I, I think that's like the ultimate uh, validation. And again, they're not making this movie for astronomers and science folks, but to add that extra layer of authenticity and frankly, coolness, in my opinion, well, I think is it's really totally great. Worth, it's worth it, and because we'll get into the black hole scenes, but they're mesmerizing, right? And that is all, so good. and from what I think I read is they built those scenes, they were feeding data and do not quote me on this this is this is a junk fact it's one of those <laughs> facts that i think i once heard and now i just assume it's real listen man this isn't the uh, the washington post this but is a I'm fun like, podcast but i'm like, but I'm like 80 85 sure that this is true so the way that they came up with how these scenes would look is they fed data into some sort of algorithm and it spit back out the image which is nuts. Uh, I know that he worked, he worked hand in hand with a theoretical physicist, Kip Thorne, who was a friend and colleague of Stephen Hawking and Carl Sagan, which is a murderer's row of like famous science names. So Imagine really what that lunch work. break was like. Oh, and Nolan was probably the most pretentious one in the entire group. <laughs> It's he's very like, possible. He's like, Man was yeah, definitely wearing guys, a scarf inside. Yeah, hey, you guys know about black holes, but have you ever seen The Dark Knight? I made that, <laughs> your boy. <laughs> How quickly, this is, a, this is something that I ask everybody because I just think it's a fun little, you know, test. How quickly... Or how soon, at what point in the movie did you figure out that Matthew McConaughey was Murph's ghost? So I saw this when I was in college and I got to be honest, I don't think I did. 
until they they told us. That's fair. I think that's a totally fair answer. Now, I am in no way, shape, or form a good predictor of things. I never have like right calls when we're talking about murder mysteries or anything. Every time, I, I'm dead wrong. But I swear to you, the second that she came, Murph comes on the screen and goes, my, my ghost knocked it down again. I turned to my dad. I said, I bet you anything that he's their ghost. Yeah. Well, I didn't have any evidence for that, but like it, it, that was just one that just clicked for me instantly. It's my shining moment of predictions. Never come close to repeating it. In hindsight, it is very, very obvious for sure. It, they lay it on thick. He's like, well, you got to do your scientific experiment. You need data and facts. And I'm yeah, like, okay, why are they making yeah. such a big deal about this ghost? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But sticking with Matthew McConaughey, I think you can argue that Interstellar was probably the conclusion of the McConaughey Because 20, I'm just going to run through his, his movies before and after, all right? Mud, 2012. Magic Mike, 2012. Dallas Buyers Club, 2013. Wolf of Wall Street, 2013. Interstellar, 2014. True Detective, 2014. So that is an all-time epic, elite run. And then afterwards, in terms of live action films, yeah, Sea of Trees, which I had never heard about until researching for this pod, Free State of Jones, which I saw and was not very good, Gold, which was okay, but didn't really make a pop culture footprint at all, The Dark Tower, which was just awful, and a few other misses in recent years that that we've also talked about. Uh, It's not to say that he completely fell off the map. He's still putting in good work. But this was probably the last installment of the reconnaissance which is a shame because he's still the same guy i just think he's made bad choices you know he was solid in the gentleman which i thought was a a decent enough kind of heist film for sure love that love that but i want to see him do more than that you know like in this this is a a heavy sci-fi film with a lot of uh plot that needs to be explained and carried lots of emotional scenes that need to be delivered. And he does that in spades, you know? Really great. He not carries this film, but you are with him. He's in every shot, I think. Um, he's he's the leading man and he does his job he leads this film and now everybody does a great job and there's a ton of other uh supporting elements both in characters and plot points that absolutely work but you know matthew mcgonaghy leads the film yeah yeah but i and, you know, so I, I i what do you think has gone wrong you know, this was a prestige blockbuster that coupled nicely with the prestige Oscar-oriented films that he did. Uh, I, I just think it's hard to pick constant winners. I think there's a reason that every Hollywood star since the dawn of time has been streaky, that everyone's been hot and cold, and that's because something on the paper, uh, you know, in the script can seem brilliant, but maybe not come to fully fruition over time when you're actually executing. So it's, it's not easy, but I still think he's been putting in good work and the things he has been. I still think there's a lot of potential for him to regain that former form if he so chooses. He may also be very content to be like, you know, I, I had my moment in the sun. Now I'm just going to do projects that personally interest me and, you know, brand and success be damned. Now, do you think he's going to cash out and do an MCU role, a DCU role. Does he strike you as that sort of guy? I, th- I know, we know for a fact that Marvel has had discussions with Matthew McConaughey. It has been reported that he passed on a role previously. We don't know uh, what it wasn't, 
Uh, I, some people have said Ego in Guardians of the Galaxy 2. Some people have said some other ones. He would make a great Norman Osborn if he ever wants to do that. Wow. At this point, I think if the quality wow. is there and, and with the MCA, right? That'd be cool. Yeah, wow. That'd be really wow. cool. I was just thinking about it for a second. Yeah, wow. He would be a He's phenomenal Norman. Hair, for sure. No, that's, that, that's, a, that's an incredible call. And uh, I don't think with the MCU, you can necessarily calling it uh, selling out because they have shown pretty consistent quality. And I no, think I as we've discussed, yeah, and as we've discussed on this pod, DC uh, seems to be kind of headed in the right direction and on some solid footing, all things considered over the last couple of years. Yeah, I think I've seen his name, uh, you know, in, in terms of what fans want. I think Reverse Flash, maybe? Uh, that earbart one that I, I could get behind that i mean he's a little old but at the same time who cares right he's now 50 you know so he's not really in that a-list age anymore he would have to be a villain or a mentor or something he could still do it maddie mick is the man he can do anything he, and I love that that he is just the man just seems like the coolest guy on earth all right, so let's segue into our awards and categories to help continue opening up this conversation about Interstellar. First one, we got a hit, the real MVP award. Kind of self-explanatory. If you're at home scratching your head wondering what that is, turn it off and open up a book because you need help. But for me, the real MVP award, and this is trying to do something that's a little bit less obvious because... You know, Matthew McConaughey is kind of the MVP. I'm going to go with Murph, both as a kid and an adult. I know that Cooper sends the data that allows her to solve the gravity equation and essentially save everybody on Earth. But Murph is the human face of the struggle that humanity is facing, the dying race that are trying and striving to survive somehow. She is the one doing the heavy lifting in terms of not giving up on Earth. And the entire conflict, we are trying to save the human race. It doesn't work unless we connect with someone who is in that struggle because obviously Matthew McConaughey and the crew of the spaceship are off gallivanting across the universe. We need an Earth-bound emotional connection. And she just nails it both as a kid and Jessica Chastain as an adult. I was going to save this for the end, but the child casting in that role is incredible. It's, it's not Mackenzie Davis, is it? I don't know who it is, but she looks just like a child version of Jessica Chastain. It's unbelievable. I don't know how. And she's a talented have. actress who's been, who's been in other things as well. Mackenzie Foy, that's her name. Gotcha. So um, I've got four here. My As first, you always do. My first is Cooper's Carhartt jacket. That tan jacket that he's wearing in the, the first act. Just a just a great work jacket. Looks awesome. Like you're just you're just hoping to pick one up, you know, if you're gonna Google Interstellar jacket, just like everyone did with Blade Runner and Ryan exactly, Gosling. Exactly. Uh, this one he's every time that he's a, a part of a film that we talk about, he gets it, and that is our boy Hans Zimmer.
every time. I, I didn't put mine. I didn't choose Hans Zimmer because I knew you would. The, the score, this, this is maybe his best score that we've talked about yet. I mean, the, the organs and just the... He makes you... For a film that's about the grandness of space, he finds a way to, to fulfill that. And that is a monumental task, and he blows it away. So the theme song, which is... Um... Ah, the name escapes me right now, but essentially I sometimes throw that on as my, like, I'm just doing work mix yeah, because it's right. just such a banger. Yeah. That do, 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 do. Yeah. That. Incredible. Uh, explaining wormholes by folding paper. That is a... Cinema classic. That is a tried and true sci-fi trope. Uh, I've counted three films. One, this, of course two uh 1997's events horizon and then 2006's deja vu oh okay yeah, you like that, one? That, that one's less space sci-fi and more like time travel sci-fi but i they- saw that movie but i did not remember that so i'm glad we can add it to the sub-genre of we're going to explain it using this very simplistic representation which it is there is a reason why they use it over and over again because explaining wormholes to a, a guy like me is a difficult thing. But as soon as they bust out that paper and pencil, I'm like, oh! I'm like the uh, Leo meme from um, uh, <laughs> uh, where he's pointing. That's me. I'm like, yeah. oh, oh, the wormhole thing. I get it now. Um, I think we can give a pass to all future space movies that want to use it. I think it doesn't sure. matter if it's become a cliche. It's simple. It works. Everyone, you're allowed to use it. We won't bash you for it. Totally agree. Um, Next. Oh, sorry. I have like six here. Calling people <laughs> slick. He, uh, Cooper calls Tars slick. That's how cool he is, that he calls a machine slick. Slick, right. So, love it. You know I'm a huge fan of slick. Um, space films. I think pound for pound, the space film genre may be the strongest. Interstellar. The Martian, Star Trek, Star Wars, Alien, Apollo 13, Moon, Armageddon, First Man, Gravity, Sunshine, Life, Hidden Figures, Deep Impact, Ed Astra. The list goes on and on and on. 2001, Space Odyssey. 2001, Space Odyssey. And they're all decent to classic movies. And then my final one is Love. Because that's what the whole film is about, right? It saves his ass. Aww. Uh, movies are known as being empathy. Not a bridge to it, but it's sort of, it makes you feel feelings that you wouldn't feel in your day-to-day life. And empathy generators. Generator, perfect word. And that is sort of what this is, right? And especially for a Nolan film, which as we talked about is quite rare. Um, it is, yeah, that's mine. Love, man. We are nerdy, hopeless romantics, man. I love it. I love that. Even though tonight is the first debate, so maybe not tonight. (laughs) Yeah, I think we're going to kind of side pocket the love and get our tough faces on tonight. Uh, And that's it for me. All right. Of course, as always, overshadowing me with many, many nominations. I respect it. I respect it. Our next one is the Jared Leto Award for the film's worst at performance, a tried and true award and category here at the Post Credit Pod. Now, this is no disrespect to this actor who has gone on to be 
you know, in a lot of talented things. But I would say Wes Bentley, who plays Doyle, again, not a bad actor, but he isn't particularly memorable in this role. And his character's entire purpose is simply to die. So that is why he gets the Jared Leto Award from me. No disrespect to Wes Bentley. It's funny because I do like him. Yeah, he's not a bad actor at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But um, I do think he's, a, he by death. By construction, he has the flattest character, who is essentially a boy count. No yeah, yeah he, just to die, just to add tension to the water world he, scene, which he, admittedly succeeds. He's like a red shirt who has lines. Absolutely, that's uh, that's a really good classification. Um, so mine is I've got three here. <laughs> the choice to dye Michael Caine's hair and beard blonde. Why? It's so distracting. I cannot not look at it. It's If we ever get Christopher Nolan on this pod, can that please be your first question? Yes, yes, I will ask him. Perhaps not first, but last. Who decided to dye his fucking goatee platinum blonde? I would love to know. Um, next, Murph and Tom's teachers. They just give up on, on this kid, despite the fact that he's the son of this genius engineer space flight pilot just like yeah he's just gonna be a farmer sorry um world didn't run out of engineers we ran out of food eric yeah ridiculous that scene is bad and then last is grown-up tom who and i sent this to you in a text because i didn't pick this up the first five or six times that that i've seen this film so tom who is cooper's son gives birth to a kid and he shows him, he's like, here, dad, this is your grandson, blah, blah, blah. And then, the, and then in the next scene, that kid is gone because he died, which is tragic. So then Tom has a new kid. <laughs> and we find that this kid is developing this horrible sounding hack, which implies that he is getting sick from the same thing that killed his first child. And yet Tom religiously insists that they will not leave. And it is, I don't understand if they're trying to harp on some theme about him being abandoned by his father, but he, his stubbornness just sticks out like a sore thumb, and I'm not really sure why they did it. This guy is a dick. <laughs> and that's it. That was the entire thought process, I think. Yeah. So I, I'm going to have to agree with you on that one. He also decks uh, Topher, uh, Topher, what's his name? Topher Grace. He also decks Topher Grace, who is literally trying to improve the health of his family. <laughs> it just seemed like a bit of an overreaction, in my humble opinion. Yeah, so that, that Tom. But Tom actually feeds into the next one, the pleasantly surprising cameo or casting. Now, Skip young one. Tom. Skip one. Be- best per- performance. Ah, uh, yes, I, yes, I did. Sorry. You're good. Yep, sorry, I did. Now, yeah, I mean, listen, Casey Affleck's a, a good actor, but I don't think we're, we're ever going to say that he stole this movie, which brings me to my next point. The best performance by anyone except the lead actor. I kind of have to reiterate what I said in The Real MVP, and that is Jessica Chastain, who plays adult Murph. The thrust of the movie, which is the love between a father and a daughter, it doesn't work unless we really connect with Murph's anger, her rage, her longing, her emptiness, and importantly, her eventual reconciliation and understanding of everything that's happened. And Murph delivers that. Even 
um, old Murph, you know, dying in her, in her bed as, as a geriatric 100-year-old. Everybody across the board does a great job. But yeah, Jessica Chastain, talented actress. Hope she does more big blockbusters such as this that, and isn't just relegated to villain in Dark Phoenix terrible roles like that. She was on a great run here too. I don't know off the top of my head what films she was in, but she had a three or four year run during this time when she was just in incredible projects. And I apologize, the older Murph is played by Ellen Burstyn, who is an iconic Hall of Fame actress. I shouldn't just call her, you know, old Murph. <laughs> uh, so for mine, I'm going with, with Tars. Everybody good? Plenty of slaves for my robot colony? I gave him a humor setting so he'd fit in better with his unit. He thinks it relaxes us. A giant, sarcastic robot. What a great idea. I have a culotte I can use when I'm joking, if you like. That'd probably help. Yeah, you can use it to find your way back into the ship after I blow you out the airlock. What's your humor setting, Dollars? That's 100%. Bring it on down to 75, please. Stage two, separation. Just let me ask you something. Dr. Brand and Edmund. Why are you whispering? They can't hear you. Lander one, prepare to detach. On my mark. Three, two, one, mark. Detach. Goodbye, Tars. Goodbye, Dr. Brent. See you on the other side. Cool. Oh, that's a great choice. I'm actually retroactively angry I didn't say that. Yeah, so Tars is great. Uh, as Doesn't have a poker face, though. Right. Nolan is not known for his sense of humor, but Tars is actually hilarious. Every quip he has, it is timely, it's authentic, and it's smartly worked into the plot with his humor settings and how they're constantly tampering with them when he says something that they don't like. He's also legitimately and tangibly helpful. He, yeah. he flies the ships. He saves them when they're drowning. He, he drops into a black hole to collect data. He lifts the spirits with a timely joke when moods are down. This entire thing fails if they don't have TARS. And like humanity movie, dies. That, and then the film itself is so heavy. He's the only comedy in the entire film. And his one-liners, whereas usually with these, you could tell that they're trying to, you know, like we lament how at the end of Justice League, Cyborg says, I can't feel my toes. I don't even know the <laughs> physics of how my toes hurt or something yeah. like that. You could usually tell when these comedy lines are shoehorned in there and forced in here, in there. And even though that that's the case with these, they're clearly, they're like, all right, we need a joke here, right? It still works every single time. So TARS for me is by a mile. Slays, I'm very pro TARS, and but I will fair, say. Wait, and just to be clear, not case, just TARS. <laughs> I like that you. <laughs> wow, now I kind of want to see a pay-per-view fight between Case and TARS. But listen, I will say, listen, I'm very pro-TARS, 100%. I agree with everything you said. But I will say the kind of grim, dark, tonal vibe of Interstellar actually works better here 
in a film about the extinction of the human race than it necessarily does in the Dark Knight trilogy, which people criticize for being devoid of levity, even though it does have moments of levity. I, I think here it is appropriate, but yes, perfectly interspersed with uh, with a nice Tars joke, like self-destruct sequence will commence in five, yeah, four. That's like a good when, joke. And when he, they launch, he's like, yeah, I'm going to shoot you out of the airlock or something. He's like giving them friendly threats <laughs> it's hilarious it just like we're gonna have to turn that that humor setting down a few percentage points on that one on the page tars as a construct is great in exactly. an execution he's greater exactly and then they even work in the tar settings to a emotional climax scene when cooper drops off yeah uh and drops off into the black hole so that brands could get pushed through and brand was like you didn't tell me that you were going to do this. Cooper says, like, 90%. Goodbye, Tars. Goodbye, Dr. Brent. See you on the other side, Coop. See you there, Slick! Okay, Case. Nice reckless flying. Learn from the master. Ranger 2. Prepare to detach. What? No! No! Cooper! Three. Cooper, what are you doing? Newton's third law. You gotta leave something behind. Two. You told me we had enough resources for both of us. One. We agree to me. 90%. One. Don't. Detach. So, yeah. not, so not only was it like a fun sort of joke, but they were able to then work it into the film's like climactic scene. It's just brilliant stuff. Really impressive. Glad that we're pro Tars. I think we might have to start a Facebook group just in honor of him. But moving on, our pleasantly surprising cameo and casting. I'm going to stick with what we were talking about before. That's Tom. But I'm going with a young Tom because it's Timothy Chalamet before he was really Timmy Chalamet. And I just think that's really cool to see performances from people who later popped in a big way, like long before we ever even knew what was coming. This film has two of the all-time surprise castings, right? When, When we go back and watch it, we see that one. And then there's Damon, Matt fucking Damon pops up in the, that is one of the all time stunt castings in any movie, any genre, period. Do you like it or do you hate it? Because people are very divided on it. How could you hate it? What is the case for hating it? People say that it takes you out of the movie because all of a sudden a massive movie star shows up and we're supposed to kind of focus on the plot and yet all we can think of is like, oh, wow, Matt Damon's here. I think those people don't understand what acting is. Yeah, I don't understand that. So you're, you're telling me if he was in the film the whole time, it'd be fine. But because he's popping yeah. up now, it's a problem. Like- and at the same time, I do understand. Some people say, and actually... Uh, weirdly enough, Ashton Kutcher talked about this on Hot Ones and made a really good point that people who are very, very open with their personality and who they are and give audiences a glimpse into their everyday lives struggle sometimes to convince people that they can play certain roles and it actually works against them occasionally, which, which I do agree with. But I've never considered Matt Damon a guy who I know a ton about outside of like, okay, he's from Boston, he's friends with Ben Affleck, and he has a funny shtick with Jimmy Kimmel. So I don't really understand the criticism of that uh, casting. 
You're telling me that you could sit through an hour and a half of Matthew McConaughey pretending to be a genius space pilot, and it's Matt Damon popping up that draws you out of the the movie? (laughs) Are you fucking kidding me? Preach. Tell him, Eric. Tell him. So mine is Damon. I love it, especially because Nolan said he wanted a guy who, when he pops on screen, you're like, oh, I could trust this guy. Like, finally, thank God, the hero is here. And the way that they subvert that is brilliant. Scumbag Damon is one of the best Damons. Every time he's playing against type, it always works. Um, and him Entourage. Being, yeah, exactly. And him being this sort of spineless weasel. Oh, well, yeah, man, I, I agree completely. I have a feeling we might agree or we might be completely off on this next one, and that is the worst line and the best line of dialogue. I actually have the same answer for both. Oh, wow. Is it the poem? Um, No, it's not the poem. The poem I really do like. Mine is Matthew McConaughey talking to John Lithgow. We used to look up at the sky and wonder at our place in the stars. Now we just look down and worry about our place in the dirt which is simultaneously a heavy-handed piece of shit line of dialogue and also incredibly accurate and a really kind of emotional summary of the entire human experience. And I cannot reconcile the two in my brain, so they have to be the, both the best and the worst, in my opinion. So I think that you're getting that feeling was because this is a line that's from one of the trailers. So when you hear it, you're like, they said the line. They said it, you know? Um, And, dude, I feel the same way, right? It's like you get the point, but it feels so forced in there. It's like, come on. You couldn't have worked it in there a little. Like, they built that entire scene. Smooth it over. They built that entire scene just so he could say that line, right? Um, My worst is the parent-teacher conference that they go to where they exposition dump the hell out of you. They tell you, Cooper's skills they're like they're like Cooper you were a scientist and this and he's like don't forget a pilot so they're (laughs) like laying out all the tricks of his trade they explain what's wrong with the world how you know the colleges work and how they ran out of whatever I don't know they ran out of what food right they ran out of food and then they make this left turn into his wife dying he's like one of those useless machines that we had with was an MRI, which would have found the cyst in my wife's brain, like out of nowhere. Um, and again, perpetuating the Nolan dead wife trope. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, so that entire scene is a disaster, right? Um, best line. I will is, say though, sorry, no, continue. Go. No, please go ahead. Go ahead. The one thing I do like about that scene is that the teacher believes that it was a conspiracy theory that we landed on the moon and the way it's presented we are led to believe that in 2067 that is somewhat of a commonly held belief and i do think that reinforces interstellar's focus on the past having such a hold on us that we cannot move forward into our future and i do think it underscores that theme really well but yes it is a uh, hey i'm a pilot i'm an engineer i'm a genius my wife is dead whoa look at me i'm matthew mcconaughey (laughs) exactly dude um, so the best, so, and then, so those are my worst. The best is the poem, you know, just hits every time. Uh, and then this is one for me and my friends. It's not really a, a best line, but it's always cracked us up. 
when Cooper and Brand come back from the water planet and their their colleague is just standing there in the doorway with his hands folded and they're like, how long has it been? And he just so calmly is like, I've been waiting for, and he's just like, I've been waiting for 23 years. And they're just like, why didn't you go to sleep? You absolute nut job. Um, and later he says he had a couple of long stretches. Yeah. But he did sleep. Like, but his, like, his, him just, like, standing there super calm yeah. in his bathrobe, having waited for two decades, while they just come in, like, soaking wet, having been down there for two hours, always cracks me up. And, like, I get that they're reinforcing that he's kind of lost his marbles a little bit, being in isolation for that long. But I'm the type of person who normally is just up, 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 energy. So if I lose my bottles, I'm like, oh shit, where were you guys? I can't believe you're back. Yeah, I can't believe right. you're back. I gotta show you this. I gotta show you that. Right, that's it. It's the calmness <laughs> that I find so funny. It's uh, just off-putting, man. I'm like, yeah, yo, yeah. you need to like relax on the clonopin that we gave you back on Earth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's just standing there like a vampire. Just <laughs> <laughs> but unfortunately, there's no video to this podcast, but if you guys could see Eric right now, it is a very, very strong physical reenactment. So that's a good one that I kind of want to go back and rewatch just to laugh at now that you've pointed that out. But I also want to get into the other Rewind That Real Quick Award. And for me, I can't take credit for this one. I got it from Hidden Eastern Egg's Twitter account, but it's a damn good one that I absolutely went back and checked out. On the Water Planet, the soundtrack in the background actually features a prominent ticking noise. And these ticks happen precisely every 1.25 seconds. And every tick you hear is a whole day passing on Earth according to the time relativity equation. And so when I saw that on Twitter and then went back and rewatched it and saw how it matched up and synced perfectly, I'm like, wow, that is the type of detail that you appreciate upon rewatches. It's a reason why generally speaking, I love Interstellar more every time I see it because there's something new to appreciate and notice and compel you each time. I think that time thing is a great, uh, a great call because one of the low key parts of that whole scene, which uh, I'm going to talk about next is one of the strongest scenes, if not the strongest scene in the film, but how they point out that the data that they were receiving from that doctor who crash landed, right? Cooper's like, how could we have, I'm not sure what he asked, but he's like, how could we have gotten this data, blah, blah, She's like, in this planet's time, she just crashed an out, like she landed wild for us, which melts my brain because they have that data before they even leave earth. They're like, all right, we're going to this planet. And when they get there, she's like, she probably died moments before we got here and that is that's the best use of sci-fi time fuckery that i've ever seen because it's also true because einstein proved the theory of relativity which makes it even better in my opinion yeah. in terms of entertainment value yeah for sure which i even though it's real i still haven't wrapped my head around exactly how the fuck it works and, and no. what's going on but there but the way that they explain it they're like in our time she's been here for 10 years, but in her time, she's been here for an hour is, whew, that'll tear your dome piece clean off. 
<laughs> well said, sir. The closest real world comparison we have is the, uh, the twins who are real astronauts. And one of them spent, uh, I believe it was 14 months on the International Space Station while the other one was on Earth. And technically speaking, due to the velocity they were traveling at, and obviously things that are way above my pay grade because I'm a dum-dum, he is half a second younger than his twin than when he left. Wow. Which, like, okay, unpack that for me, <laughs> astrophysicist. So my rewind that real quick is any shot of a black hole or planets or stars because they're just incredible and you want to pause them and just look at them, right? And then next is, and this was just a quick one, when they fly into that frozen cloud, you yeah. don't expect it at all. And then it happens. You're like, wait, what the fuck just happened right there? So that was very cool. And to that point, a lot of interstellar is practical effects. Like they built uh, miniature spaceships to kind of represent some of the flying and everything. That's really impressive craftsmanship. Yeah. Now, this next one is the Put This in the Museum Award. Eric, I want you to explain it, because this is one you introduced on the last pod. You have a firm grasp of it, and I also just think it's a creative quality award that deserves the recognition. So if you had to submit a piece of this film to be a part of the, the film Hall of Fame, if what is the film's definitive moment, scene, line, X, Y, Z? Uh, for me, I've got two. It's the water planet scene, which is, you know, um, sci-fi drama of the highest order. Those I, aren't mountains. Yeah, well, not just so, right, right. Not even, I didn't even think about that, to be honest. I was just so focused on the way that they, they worked in the, the time and how that was such a propulsive way to ramp up the drama, right? Like you, like the, the sheer concept of lo losing seven years for every one hour breaks our breaks our brains right so then actually watching that unfold it, it's so tense um that's probably the tensest maybe best sequence in in the film in terms of what it's trying to do for sure right so that's why i would submit it to the hall of fame and then the next would be when they go into the black hole for the first time and it's just a CGI onslaught, right? Like you're flying through a, a black hole, uh, Brand reaches into that distortion in space time and gives herself a reverse handshake as, as she calls it. Um, so I just think that those two scenes, uh, the time water planet scene is the best example of Nolan weaponizing and dramatizing science. And then the black hole scenes because it is the literal on-screen representation of all these themes. You're seeing the most realistic black hole you've ever seen in that film. And that's incredible. I like both of those a lot, Eric. Those are really good answers. And I'm not just saying that as like, oh, happy-go-lucky podcast partners. Those are just really thoughtful kind of elements to highlight. My choice for this award, it's a little bit more conceptual, and that is framing devices in general and the way you execute them. Now, in Interstellar, the framing devices, what we open on in the opening scene, it's a docu-series that recounts the events of the film, uh, and it's, it purposely evokes Ken Burns' 2012 documentary, The Dust Bowl. Now, doing that, it, 
it, that's not in and of itself a, a revolutionary framing device. We've seen some variation of that a million times, but I absolutely love how Nolan's attempt to reinvent a past catastrophe for a realistic future setting works as both a framing device and a catalyst for the film's plot, but it also is a thematic motif that then runs throughout the rest of the film. I have said on this podcast multiple times and I've written about it for Observer, Interstellar is a futuristic movie that is obsessed with a past, beholden to the past, and eventually about breaking away from the past. So to set your movie up that way and then carry it through in very elegant ways throughout was really impressive to me. So put that in a museum, even though you can't put concepts in a museum. That's a great little shout about the Ken Burns doc. I didn't know all that. Yeah, man, that's some that's deep dive. Cool. Yeah, that's some, cool. some nerdy film buff stuff that's right cool there. Stuff. That's good stuff. Now for this next award, whew, I have a feeling we have the same answer. And even if not, it's the most obvious answer. And that is the best hero moment. I don't agree. Now to me, uh, oh, okay. Go ahead, well, go ahead. To me, there's really only one logical answer, and that is the docking scene. Okay. Come on. Yeah, Cooper, it's impossible. No, it's necessary. Yeah. <laughs> the fucking soundtrack is going off. The visuals are amazing. If you're seeing it in the IMAX theater in 2014, your mind is absolutely blown, as are your eardrums. It's, it's, it shouldn't be. Yes. Score just, ugh. It's something that, to me, should be clownish, and yet absolutely isn't. Cooper, there's no point in using her fuel to chase- Analyze the endurance of spin. Cooper, what are you doing? Docking. Endurance rotation is 67, 68 RPM. Okay, get ready to match our spin with the retro thrusters. It's not possible. No, it's necessary. Yeah, so that was mine. You're totally right. The re- and he's he's being hit with so much G-force that he's <laughs> exactly yeah yeah yeah. And he's like, come on, Tars. And, oh. Ian Hathaway goes out, and he still locks that bad boy in under contest. That is is such a good scene, because, like, once that ship explodes, you're like, oh, they're fucked, right? It's over. Yeah, you just assume that there's no way out. And he sees this thing spinning, and you're like, is he about it? And he's like, Tars, loop our speed to theirs. And you're like, oh, my God, he's actually going to do it. Um, like zero hesitation too. Like in terms of when a disaster happens, most of us have a, a few a buffer of reaction time, and he just snaps into action like an absolute badass. That, that's a hero, baby. That's, that's what hero. heroes do. And then, and then, so, and then, pretty much in the same scene later, I have when he chooses to drop into the black hole and says goodbye to Brand uh, without telling him, her his plan before that. And they have that exchange, and he's just oozing charisma. Like, he seems so confident in his choice, right? Uh, and as I brought up, he's able to work in the whole 90% truth quip. Um, they call back. So everything about that sort of, that 30-minute, like, right before he is doing all that crazy black hole time travel stuff 
that to me is the peak of the film the uh the reattachment and then him choosing to drop into the the hole so kind of bouncing off that in the opposite direction what is the worst thing you can say about interstellar yeah so this sort of lends to that i cut off the best part of the film at the time travel tesseractness because i'm not sure that that'll ever really fly with me um it is such a dense idea and even if it was so even if it wasn't so dense just the way it was applied how it looks how tars and him are explaining it to each other but they're really explaining it to us yeah Uh, all this talk about future humans and creating a construct that he could work in it's 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 a lot and i could see how that could ruin the entire film for some not me for some um i don't even though I am into it in theory and I love the ending, I don't buy the potential romantic feelings between Brand and Cooper. Uh, they, they like at the ending, he sort of sets back off into space to go find her and be with her, which you know me as a theme. I love that. Right. But they don't do enough work in the two hours prior to suggest that they had any sort of chemistry. The only chemistry that they had was towards the end where they put their space helmets together, like face to face and Brand is, you know, and Brand is like, I'm sorry, blah, blah, blah. But beyond that, they don't really do enough legwork, I think, to convince me that they were really, really vibing. And then my final one is, it sort of zooms through that last 15 minutes. Like once he, once he gets through that, the, black hole it's like all right it's over and they sort of explain yeah your daughter's old now and we're on these space stations and uh hand wave exposition yeah and and brand is still out there and you got to go find her and we name this after your daughter and look there's kids playing ball in the park and it's over you know so i think that they should have saved a little more time for the for the post climax fallout yeah, I think to me, we're, we're on the same page about a lot of things. Interstellar swings for a home run in its final act when a base hit would have more than sufficed. The bookcase tesseract that exists outside of time and space and was constructed by a future human civilization that evolved beyond three-dimensional beings, and then they sent the wormhole to save themselves in the past, and it was specifically connected to this one family – it's such an overthrown curveball in what is otherwise a very grounded and matter of fact science fiction movie. So it is too many leaps that try to traverse too vast a distance. Though, like I said before, it is undoubtedly good for thought theorization and Reddit threads. It, it ultimately doesn't achieve what the movie set out to do, even while it thinks it is the ultimate intellectual pinnacle. So we've said our worst thing about it, and I think it's a very fair criticism. What's the nicest thing you can say about this movie? So I said it at the top. It's somehow at the same time is Nolan's most ambitious, grandiose, daring, science-driven film. But yet at the same time, it's his most personal. I have, I pretty much shed tears every time the scene that Cooper watches the tape of his kids. Um, it, at its peaks, it's everything that's great about 
about Nolan and what he brings to sort of blockbuster, big budget filmmaking, right? Like it is, you know, we lament franchises and reboots and remakes and the MCU and the DCU. I mean, just today it came out that they're doing a live action Lion King 2. What they are doing with Barry Jenkins. Like, while I don't care about that concept, I will see anything Barry Jenkins directs. Uh, fine, fine, whatever. But my point is that it's just like, all right, like, we get it. Like, uh, but Nolan comes clip fully loaded, creates films on these massive scale that unless it's a comic book film, we don't really see. But he's kind of the only one that does it. And when he hits, he's firing on all cylinders. He's hitting drama, sci-fi, action, comedy, plot mind fucking uh mic drop endings it's all there this film at its peaks is nolan at his absolute best yeah at its core i believe interstellar is nolan's most personal film and his most hopeful film and but underneath that hope there's this steady stream of mental baggage that this kind of decaying world and all the characters within it must contend with and it's a baggage that it exists like materially apart from the film, but it nonetheless informs the narrative and everybody's choices within it. And I think at the end of the day, what I really like is that the movie knows there can be no present or future without the past, but it suggests we are not beholden to the mistakes and problems of before as we look forward to forward. And I really like that idea conceptually. I like it in execution. And I think it represents... Nolan truly touching on something emotional rather than this kind of clinical blockbuster auteur doctoring of amazing plots. Well said. Thank you, sir. Now, if you catch Interstellar on cable, are you watching? Absolutely. In fact, I think Nolan is like the king of this. Any one of his films, if I see that it's on, I'm going to watch. Period. The end, really. At least a few minutes, right? A couple scenes at the minimum. I agree completely. I'm watching it. Next question. Do you want a sequel to Interstellar? Nah. nah. Nope. Yep. I Again, I agree completely. Not because I don't like it, because as we've explored on this pod, we absolutely do, but because it absolutely succeeds in telling an independent story that doesn't rely on anything else, and it wouldn't benefit from additional storytelling. Like the core concept doesn't invite continuation in the same way that Inception might. You know what I mean? For sure, for sure. All right, and last but not least, is there any cool stuff that you think is worth mentioning for the fans? So I've used my two. Uh, they ta- they worked hand-in-hand with Kip Thorne. Um, Very cool. And creating the black holes and how the time stuff would work and, and what it would all look like. And that pays off because as we've talked about on this pod, the sci-fi in this, it, it'll hold, uh, sorry, not the sci-fi, the CGI in this, it'll mm-hmm. hold up for another 10 plus years, I think. It it's is, fantastic. It is, it, it looks like you're in space. That's the best way that I could put it. And then, and then I had the childhood casting of Murph is unbelievable. Mackenzie Foy, absolutely killing that. Yeah. I had uh, two. Number one, Spielberg was originally going to direct a previous iteration of this movie. And I would love to see that and compare it to Christopher Nolan's Interstellar because Nolan is this generation Spielberg in the sense that they're both 
master technicians as filmmaker and universally agreed upon to be high quality filmmakers. So I think seeing them tackle the same movie actually would be really interesting in terms of a juxtaposition compare and contrast scenario. I'd like to see that. And then number two, sorry, what? No Spielberg and Nolan comparison. I don't know if I see that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, that's like the, the big narrative around them too. That's not like a just me saying that. Spielberg strikes me as more of a, popcorn romp guy like it's like uh not in terms of content uh, in content yeah he's a sentimentality type of director whereas uh i would say nolan is a tactician but they are popcorn blockbuster filmmakers who also bring prestige and mass audience yeah, okay he, he is this generation's that and i also think it's really interesting i wrote about this for observer too that they both kind of returned to world war ii to change the perception around them spielberg was a guy who was docked for how emotional and sentimental his films were and then he made uh schindler's list, list which yeah. not coincidentally earned him his first best director win. And then Nolan is a guy who has always been kind of considered a, a elevated popcorn filmmaker, but not coincidentally earned his first best director nomination and real Oscar prestige for Dunkirk, a World War II movie. So I do think it's interesting that that connection between them helped change the overarching narrative around them, fair or not. For sure, yeah. Good point. And okay. then Sold. just my other tidbit was that Nolan earned $20 million for this up front and then 20% of the first dollar gross. So the man got paid. What is first dollar gross for the fans at home? They're like so, me and have no idea what the fuck that means. Once the film turned to profit, he then got 20% of the dollars that rolled in. Wow. wow. Yeah, Good so not too shabby for yeah. Nolan. All right, well, that'll do it for our interstellar deep dive. Be sure to tune in for our next episode where we're tackling Dunkirk. That'll actually conclude our Christopher Nolan retrospective. Now, do we want to... Oh, yeah. Well, no, no, no. I mean, no, that's fine, but we don't have to. If the fans want us to, we will. We don't have that much coming up next week, so I don't see why not. We could do a Batman Begins, Dark Knight Rises co-pod. Uh, we could, yeah, we could close out the Dark Knight trilogy for the fans out there. I don't think that those films need their own podcast each. I think that we could do them both in one. So we'll do Dunkirk next, and then we'll do those two in one. I like it. So look for today's what? Today's Tuesday. Dunkirk, uh, this podcast will come out Wednesday. So look for those podcasts next week then. And in the meantime, follow along with all of our entertainment shenanigans at PostCredPod on Twitter, at Eric underscore Ital, at great underscore catsby we throw some good stuff out there and i don't want to jinx us folks but we could have some very very cool guests coming in the next month or so so keep an eye out for that you're gonna love it all right y'all go i am the father my name is maximus decimus meridius 